doing a dance with democracy coming up on love thy neighbor you're listening to the love thy neighbor podcast your home for discussion and analysis of the theology ethics and political philosophy of ryan Rothman. Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast in the world exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined as always by co-host Zach Narrison. As we record uh, here today, it is Halloween day, so happy Halloween to everybody. Um, you, the listeners, however, are listening to this in November as we are getting closer to Thanksgiving. So I will begrudgingly forego all the spooky sound effects and instead insert a turkey gobble here. <laughs> what we have coming up later on in this month is an interview with Dr. Charles Matthews, uh, the Augustinian and uh, Niburian scholar from the University of Virginia. And uh, we are still uh, rescheduling, I think, right, Zach, uh, uh, an interview with Dr. John Milbank. Have we set up a date on that yet? Not yet. Okay, that's forthcoming. But today we have a guest we've been looking forward to speaking with uh, for a long time. I've been aware of his work for some time, but only recently did we start interacting with one another on that digital hellscape we formerly knew as Twitter. Um, but uh, his name is Dr. Uh, Melvin Rogers. Dr. Rogers is Professor of Political Science and Associate Director of Philosophy, Politics and Economics at Brown University. He specializes in race, democracy, philosophy, history. I mean, there's a, and the way all these things kind of come together um, and express themselves in culture. Uh, and he is author of the recently published work, The Darkened Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thought, which is the topic of conversation today. Dr. Rogers, what an honor to have you on. Welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you both for having me on. Yeah. Now, Dr. Rogers, I couldn't help but notice, uh, A, you have an admiration for Niebuhr, um, and we'll get into that later at some point, but B, in looking over your background, you also have done a whole lot of work on John Dewey. Yes. So just quick off-the-cuff reaction to this question, because this, is, this isn't even in the ballpark necessarily of what we're discussing today. Niebuhr and Dewey's rivalry and differences and how the sparks kind of flew, you know, when they would talk about each other, overblown or valid? Uh, overblown. I think uh, Niebuhr and Dewey were speaking past each other, mostly mm. uh, mostly Niebuhr's fault, I think. Um, uh, but I think uh, that there are a great many positions that Niebuhr holds about the sort of fragility of humanity and our need to recognize it mm -hmm. that Dewey would willingly embrace. Um, and that Dewey is, is not as the sort of picture of the progressive Democrat that Niebuhr worries about hmm. um, and that he targets in Dewey, I, I think it it misses its it misses its mark, uh, even though I think that the substance of what Niebuhr wants to say about that kind of type is actually right. Yes, yeah, and that was my impression too. A lot of times they would probably end up more times than not on the same side, uh, politically, uh, polity-wise, those types of issues. It's the, you know, uh, underneath the hood type of th stuff that right. they might uh, differentiate on. Okay, good. Now let's get into it. Um, for our audience, the way this is going to work is Zach and I have both read Dr. Rogers' book, uh, The Dark and Light of Faith, 
race, democracy, and freedom in African-American political thought. And we have both prepared questions for him. So we're both just going to ask him those questions, me first and then Zach, and a round will go for about an hour and then we'll wrap up. So to get us started, I just want to ask you a general question. Tell us how this uh, book came together. What gave birth to this thought baby? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I was, um, when I was a graduate student many years ago working on John Dewey, I was always thinking about um, African-American thinkers, uh, and I had been thinking about them since I was an undergraduate. Uh, so I was always thinking about them, but I was working on Dewey. And at the heart of my my first book project, The Undiscovered Dewey, uh, I, I sort of argue that one of the important contributions that Dewey um, uh, makes in his thinking about democracy that's underappreciated is the way in which he sort of centralizes uncertainty and the way in which, again, to use this word that I've already used, uh, he sort of introduces a kind of fragility to humanity that he thinks illuminates uh, our normative capacities. And at the end of that book, um, I found myself wondering, well, what, what, what group has really endured um, uncertainty in the context of American democracy? There are actually there are a number of candidates, um, but I decided that I would focus on tradition of African-American political thought. Um, and that is what initially gave life to the project. Fascinating. And so it was an inquiry into the ways in which these Black figures were grappling with the persistence of uncertainty, precarity, vulnerability mm. in the context of a democratic society. Interesting. And wrestling over the uncertainty inherent in kind of dueling narratives about what democracy even is. And we'll get into that more in here, here in a second. But uh, so, so that bit emerged. Right. So that's the that was the emergent bit. You're right. So you always have that 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 start to research. And then as you get going, yeah. things began to emerge, including the discussion of faith and these kinds of things. But things began to emerge. But you're but th that sort of dueling account is what came uh, later as I was in the, the sort of archive of, of African-American political. And I could see how that happened because when I'm reading this book, it seems like you you kind of found this pocket, you know, and uh, and and it's more started building off of that. And, mm -hmm. and it turned into a, a really a beautiful layout for the whole thing. So um, very well done. Uh, Zach, you have the next one. Yeah, um, I did another kind of general question just about the book and the formation of it. Um, my training is just in basically hermeneutics and some pastoral carriage type of stuff. And um, one of the things I really appreciate about your book is it's deeply expository. It's like, you really take people like, 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 you know, oftentimes when you read books, there's a lot of synthesis that goes on and it's all synthesized down. And you're not really quite sure where one thought came from or another thought came from, but it, you really bring the thinkers like to the forefront. You really bring their words out. And I was just wondering what caused you to choose that style. Right. So I, so um, I'm trained as a political scientist, a political theorist, um, but the sort of form of the methodological orientation is really that of a kind of historian of political thought, right? Mm -hmm. So whether it was in the Dewey Project or whether in this book, I'm always telling you a kind of historical, um, uh, I'm always providing a, a historical narrative. Uh, and to drive home the point, right, that there are philosophical claims that are emerging from these thinkers in a context in which a great many of us, and at this point, sometimes unbeknownst to ourselves, we don't always think about these figures as philosophical, 
But in order to drive home that point, we have to stay very, we have to stay close to the text, right? Mm -hmm. All right, we can't drift too far. We got to stay close to the text because I wanted to show you um, that the kinds of claims I'm attributing to them follows from the text. And although I may give it a, um, by contemporary standards, a kind of philosophical form, mm -hmm. I don't want you to think that that form somehow is betraying what they what they uh, were up to, right? Um, and so this is one of the reasons why we stay close to the text. And we also stay close to the text um, because we're trying to get at how these figures sit in relation uh, to each other and how it is possible to stabilize a set of claims and ideas across. I mean, we begin in the 1830s and we go to the 1960s. And so how do we stabilize a set of considerations across that time? And, and thus, this is how you get the kind of the, 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 sort of, the sort of emphasis on exposition that is housed within a kind of historical narration of these kind of philosophical ideas. Yeah, it really, it, it's very, I would say, it's uniquely impactful. Like it really, you can really feel it when you read through with with the context and then with with their very like you, you would you would make a statement about something and then you would bring out the exposition of where you got it from and it really just like solidifies it it really you can really feel it now um along kind of with the, the style in which you wrote this but also kind of with a view to the mystery stuff and Niebuhr might call it ambiguity um that you were getting at earlier um now Dr. Rogers, when when I'm a hammer, all I see is nails, and when when I'm a host of Love Thy Neighbor podcast, all I see is Niebuhr. So <laughs> I, I want to admit that up front, okay? But one thing Niebuhr loved to do was he loved to complicate the hell out of stories we tell ourselves, mm -hmm. um, especially as a culture. Now you tell a very complicated story about the black experience in America. And you detail a very complicated story about the, the historic and present day relationship between African-Americans and democracy. Mm -hmm. This isn't an easy relationship where everything's hunky-dory, you just gotta believe in democracy with all your heart. But it also isn't an easy story where democracy is this evil force and we just have to reject it altogether either. So explain to us, I guess, like, you know, when we get into conversations about the historical and present day black struggle in America, in the words of the great philosopher Avril Lavigne, why'd you have to go and make things so complicated? Well, I mean, because the landscape is messy. Yeah. Right. And sometimes the, the stories we reach for, uh, uh, even when uh, easy and useful and help us navigate the landscape very easily, um, they do so by flattening the landscape. Uh, and they do so by just sort of denying the texture of it. And one of the things that I find quite striking about this this tradition uh, is that they're not, you know, these figures, they're not the only figures in the tradition, and this is not the only uh, philosophical, historical narration one could provide of the tradition. But, but in that thread that I'm sort of uh, pulling on uh, and focusing on, these figures are not naive. Mm -hmm. I mean, they know that they are um, vulnerable and that their situation is precarious. And so the question was how to sort of capture their sense of their precarity and yet their commitment to, to democracy. I mean, this is in fact how you get that title, right? The Darkened Light of Faith, right? 
Yeah. How to articulate a form of faith and its luminosity mm -hmm. that partly comes about because of a confrontation with um, the darkness within the history and the people with whom you're trying to build a shared life with, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a complicated story. And it's a, it seems to me that the story about African-Americans in the context of the United States um, is a pretty sort of dramatic form of vulnerability that I would say attends all of us insofar as we belong to a democratic society, insofar as we belong to a shared project. What African-Americans was trying to do, they were trying to sort of disentangle the specificity of their vulnerability from their race. Mm -hmm. But they wanted to say, once I disentangle that, we still will be vulnerable since we share a life together. Yeah. Now, let's, if we can, let's put some uh, some flesh on these bones a little bit. So kind of at at the center, one of your driving kind of dialectics, if I could call it that, is the the narr the romantic narrative and the tragic narrative. I wonder if you could open that up a little bit one by one and then how they relate to one another and and where you go from here. Right. So the so what's driving the book? So the book is trying to understand uh, what justifies our faith in democracy, especially the faith of African Americans? Um, and that question uh, is appropriate because historically, uh, from the 1830s where I, I began to even our present moment, um, uh, uh, Black people seem to be subject to uh, a kind of uh, a very sort of particularized form of vulnerability. And that question then opens on to another question, which is, how must they have understood democracy in order to justify their appeals to the polity? Right? Mm -hmm. So one, uh, one story, a romantic story, uh, shows us a nation, the United States, constantly struggling against the forces of white supremacy, culturally and institutionally, and constantly beating it back. And in every iteration in which we beat it back, more room is made for more people, mm -hmm. right? Um, from the American Revolution to the Civil War, um, uh, to the collapse of Reconstruction, but the reassertion uh, of freedom through the Civil Rights Movement, right? Right. right. right? The, the, the sort of next foundational period uh, of, of the country. We see the nation beaten back. And so we have to ask the question, well, then what is the stat? How are we to sort of think about racial inequality and white supremacy in that narrative? Well, the reason why we can beat those back is because that's not who we really are, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. These are aberrations. These are not, these anomalies. These are not, it's not expressive of our true identity, right? Mm -hmm. So the kind, of, the kind of language that we use today, that's not who we are, mm -hmm. is a language that we've been using for a very, very long time in the United States, even when we didn't use those words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the other side, there's a kind of tragic story. Uh, a dark story that basically says, look, here's the irony to American democracy. <laughs> that its progress seems to be premised on the violation of Black people. Mm. Grievances expressed are meant to propel the nation forward. Mm. The nation seems to symbolically perform that, but never substantively, only to find itself back in this place again. And the, and the thought is that the is that the is that the nation um, for it to understand its own identity, its commitment to freedom and equality, is constantly engaged in the practice of cannibalizing black people. Yeah. Um, right. The yeah. most dramatic form of of course is the era of lynching, 
Um, but some would say that it's that it's that it's prominent today. And the tragic story would say this is because at the heart of uh, um, uh, American life, at the heart of the modern project itself, is uh, a kind of uh, a kind of anti-blackness in which one's white counterparts only come to understand their freedom and equality through the eyes of those that are denied the enjoyment of those things. I think the first romantic story um, uh, uh, just simply denies the persistence of racial inequality and the like. And, and denies that it's a function of choices that we're actually making. Mm -hmm. it, it, it is emanating from us. It is emanating from our will. But I think that the second tragic story expands the history so much so that we can't get a sense of our agency in response. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it expands the history so much so that we can't get a sense of our agency because history, in the tragic view, is in a kind of magical way, moved, it, it moves beyond the domain of history um, and into that which is part of the very sort of infrastructure yeah. of human life itself, right? It's it's part of the, the furniture of, of reality, right? The ontological basis of mm -hmm. life. And if it's that, then you can't touch it at all. And so we need a way to walk a path in the middle that can both see ourselves as transformative but without denying the sort of darkest features that are not anomalous to the United States, but that are part and parcel of its past and its traditions. And so the dark and light of faith and this group of thinkers tries to walk this, tries to walk this middle path. I love it. And when I when I'm reading this, I'm I want to categorize things in these simple, even the dialectic, I want to create a simple of romantics are the more progressive. They believe in progress. Uh, the tragic is everything's doom and gloom. And you do call it the dark side, the you know, the darker narrative. Uh, but e like even wrapped up into our understanding of that tragic history, that's an that's a, another shared history that some will see as progressive. So if we look at it from a typical uh, white liberal perspective, uh, you know, perspective of history, we would say FDR is like FDR, LBJ are like the highlight of like, uh, you know, political progress. That's when we really boomed. Mm -hmm. But that was also the time Jim Crow is at its peak. Right, right. So there's this inherent irony to all of our progress. And this is what you're saying. So a lot of times, you know, what we typically think about when we, when we think about progress, it's still wrapped up in the the subjugation of black peoples so it's not even fair to that to just bifurcate it into pessimistic and optimistic but you have to crawl into the black lens to see it in a more uh nuanced and complicated way than even that yeah i think i mean i think that's right and that gives us i mean that sort of helps us lay bare the irony of American history, the way in which our progress, you know, to invoke Niebuhr's title, but the, but the way in which progress, um, uh, 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 you know, carries with it a, a kind of darker, a sort of darker undercurrent. And I would say that for the, for the tragic story, you know, I, you know, one way to see it as progressive is to see it as, as, um, as freeing. Because if I know, for example, that you are going to di disappoint me, that I don't set any expectations that mm -hmm. you will do otherwise. Mm -hmm. And not setting any expectations that you right, setting, set you know, not setting expectations that you know you'll meet the you'll you know meet the demand, 
means that it frees me from the burden of uh, thinking about you doing right by me. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the 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 sort of you know the sort of darker story takes itself in one way as freeing uh, African Americans from the burden that is placed upon them, mm -hmm. the burden to save the nation. Well, if the nation is beyond salvation, if it's beyond actually repair, then now you can take that energy and invest it elsewhere. That's right. Yeah. Right. And there's a complete loss of agency. There's why should I am just a part of the the machinery. Hmm. Right. So my, my argument, of course, is that it comes at a cost, a, a deep political and cultural cost. Mm -hmm. um, that to that to be quite honest, African Americans and their allies are still just simply trying to get on in the community, right? Yeah. Um, and you don't just simply get on in the community without attempting to make the community a home in which you can get on in. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so th that means that means resistance and contestation are a feature of what it means. But but that's just simply a feature of what it means to be a democratic citizen. We right. each must be prepared to pull another to the red carpet when one has acted inappropriately um, uh, or, or one has violated a deep norm of the society to which we both claim to be committed. We Niburians would call that repentance. But yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Zach, you have the next one. Yeah, the, uh, I, in, in reading uh, the book, one of the things that just jumped out to me over and over again was um, that concept of faith and how you use the concept of faith. Uh, you said on page 22, and I, I've thought about this over and over again, it's lived rent-free in my head. You said, uh, precisely because faith takes uncertainty as a central feature of its existential and epistemic logic, faith holders are capable of struggling in the face of democracy's likely compromises with justice and disregard without giving in to pessimism or withdrawal. And it, there's kind of two things I want to say about this. One of them is, for some reason, one of the things that really kind of shocked me, and maybe it's still a little embarrassing, I must say, is it made me realize just how unique, like historically, the civil rights movement is, and just how unique uh, the faith of Black people in terms of, like, like you said, in bringing about progress in the United States is. Um, just how, how, as you were going through kind of some of the more pessimistic viewpoints, how really those make a lot more logical sense. Like they, they could, we really, really jumped out to say, you know, I, What's what's his name? The the guy that went to Harvard. Um, I'm just blanking on his name. Oh, Delaney. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, in reading, in reading, you know, in, as you go through Delaney, it, his viewpoint makes a lot of logical sense. It's like you know, it, I, his frustrations and his tension with Douglas makes a lot of sense, right? I find myself kind of empathizing with him and saying, man, like his position is, man, maybe that's that makes a lot. Of, I think throughout history, I think a lot of people might have ended up there. Um, but my, my question, my question to you, sorry, I kind of went on a little rant there. Uh, do you think we've lost the faith? No, I mean, you know, so in the book, I'm trying to explain how these figures understood themselves and how it is that they could make their constant appeals to the nation amid disregard. And I reach for the language, sometimes quite obvious in some thinkers, sometimes not so much. I reach for the language of faith. Uh, as a way to capture how these thinkers are often running ahead of the evidence that they need to justify the stance that they're taking toward the nation, hmm. the evidence that would suggest it can be something otherwise. Hmm. 
And that this sense of, of, of faith, it seems to me, although I'm focused on Black folks, but it seems to me that it's a concept of faith that actually can travel. Hmm. Because if we look at social movements throughout U.S. history, but beyond in democratic societies, we are often dealing with social movements that are looking around and do not, in fact, see the evidence that the society can be otherwise. And yet, by dint of their own sense of what justice demands, right? they engage in an imaginative projection of what a society would look like. And they use that projection retrospectively, dialectically or reflexively to discipline their work to bring it into existence. They're not pulling it from, they're not just pulling it out of their heads, right? They're bits and pieces, but it's not properly speaking evidence. They're bits and pieces in the world that they, that they uh, live in. And then they put together a kind of coherent pattern, a coherent pattern of life. In the context of the United States today, I mean, I think that the, the thing that we are grappling with um, is, and we've all heard it, I'm sure your viewers, uh, your listeners will have heard it. Um, the thing that we're grappling with is not um, a disagreement about what equality demands or disagreement about what freedom demands. What we really are disagreeing about is whether or not we ought to be oriented around freedom and equality. Mm. And that cuts at the very heart of the very meaning of American life, right? And we're not, as a result, polarized because we don't, we're not subscribing to the same thing. We mm. inhabit at various moments different worldviews, right? And so there are some who have faith, you know, in, in a certain kind of society where if you if you sort of press on it, it's quite constrained and narrow. Yeah. There are others who have a who have a faith in a different kind of society um, that appears to be expansive, but they would quest after it at all costs, even if it means right getting rid of those who seem to be shaky in the middle. Mm. Um, and and that's the kind of crises of faith, of political faith, civic faith that I think we're seeing. That I think we're seeing today, right? And both sides, in different ways, seem to have very sort of critical relationships to the vitality and the vibrance of the nation mm. as an animating category. Right, in which we all can sort of live and in which we all can share. So I have a question that goes right along with that. Um, do you find it at all ironic that the moment Black voices and minority voices are starting to become more powerful and assumed in democracy, their agency more expanded, is the very moment democracy itself is under threat? Mm -hmm. So do we do we see this correlation between uh, more possible avenues of equality and freedom occurring at the very moment that very real threats of authoritarianism within our own society um, is on the horizon? It feels like or at least it's here. Yeah, no. So 1920, W.B. Du Bois, Darkwater. Um, 
And this is a moment in which Du Bois is sort of defining whiteness, right? And he doesn't mean whiteness as a phenotypical trait, meaning that I can sort of look at various people in the world in the way you could look at me and be like, oh, that's he's black, she's white. He doesn't mean it in a phenotypical way. Mm -hmm. He means whiteness as an ideological position, mm. right? Um, and when he's defining the meaning of whiteness, it means ownership of the earth. So when we particularize it in the context of the United States, part of what the sort of changing demographics represent, I'm not new in sort of saying this, part of what it signals is the lack of ownership. Mm -hmm. So when you get a, a sort of failed coup mm -hmm. uh, in the Capitol, right, um, that is, it emanates from the perception that the democracy is being taken and it's rightfully ours and thus we can march on right we can interesting and usurp power because because those who are thought to um uh, um uh, enjoy in this uh, are seemingly enjoying in it at the expense mm -hmm. of of those whoever the argument goes have a rightful claim to it and that, and that isn't, you know, that's what we're seeing on display. But this, of course, reflects both the logic of of white of, of sort of whiteness as an ideological category. We want to be very clear about that, and the way in which that obscures that to live in a democratic society is always to live in a society that is shared, mm -hmm. and in fact, it's not yours; it's ours. Right. Right. right? Right, that the hallmark of the way we secure our freedom is not, in fact, by individual assertion. We secure our freedom through our shared, our sort of shared uh, uh, governance together. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. shared governance together is only possible because we recognize ourselves, uh, as as Daniel Allen would say, we recognize ourselves as as equals, right, in this project. So it's kind of like we love, we white folk love our democracy. Until it doesn't favor us. <laughs> uh, so the one thing, the one thing that I'm unsure about, and here is where I think you know social scientists, those social scientists who study in American politics, should enter in. The one thing I'm unsure about is what we think we're seeing when we follow the news and the pundits. Mm -hmm. So you know, if we focus on Trump, we know he just has a kind of small, a small slice mm -hmm. of Republicans. Mm -hmm. A small slice seems to have exercised a great deal of control politically. Mm -hmm. But we have to be careful. And again, we have to reach for the social scientist here who studies these things. It's not always clear to me that what we're seeing on the screen, what yeah. we're hearing from the pundits, reflects where ordinary everyday Republicans are. Yeah. Some of whom, or many of whom, also are white. I just, so I don't know the you know, I don't know the proper correspondence because if it was tight correspondence, I don't know that we would have Biden in the presidency, right? Yeah, so, 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 I think we, you know, I don't want to say too, you know, I don't want to go too far here beyond my beyond my expertise on this. Yeah, you know, Cliff always, uh, especially in October, he always likes to ask a spooky question, a Halloween question. So I, I, I tried to do something um, serious question, but. Um, it goes along with his, he always tries to end on a, a funny question. Um, but I, I thought I'd, I'd get ahead of him, right, before oh, he gosh. gets his question. So I, I thought I'd ask a question. 
Um, <clears throat> so I tried to I tried to embody Niebuhr's ghost here in this question. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I took all my notes and I tried to synthesize them down and come up with a question that I thought maybe Niebuhr, if Niebuhr's ghost was here, he might ask you based on your book. This is sort of what I came up with. Uh, do you believe that the active stance of faith you describe is sufficient to uh, continue overcoming our deep-seated challenges? Or is there a role of divine grace and transcendence in your framework? Additionally, how does your vision of active faith navigate the tension between maintaining a steadfast commitment to a transformation, a, a transformative vi vision of society and the pragmatic necessities of political action, which might right. sometimes require compromises and engagements with imperfect systems and individuals? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good Debarian question. Um, I, I, you know, I think that there's a sort of bias in the favor or in the direction of faith as the property, the exclusive property of religious traditions, yeah. religious theological traditions, right? And I think that that's actually, um, if you follow if you follow the book, I think actually that's a mistake because we often find ourselves, if you think about faith in the way I'm suggesting, the kind of running ahead of the evidence, we often find ourselves in these situations. And we may not reach for the language of faith because of the gravity of the issue. But when the issue is grave, if it relates to, you know, if it relates to ultimate concerns in Tillich's sense, right, the ground of one's existence, mm -hmm. then the corresponding, um, the corresponding framework that keeps us committed needs to be reached for, and that seems to me to be faith. Mm -hmm. And so what is what do these folks have faith in? Well, it seems to me that they have faith in the transformative possibilities of human beings. And they have faith that uh, democracy serves as a way of life that supports that transformative possibility mm -hmm. latent in human beings. And they invest their energies in that as a way to sort of bring into existence a racially uh, a racially just, a racially just society. So that's all to say that I do think that this is um, a robust account, and I think it's a robust account because, in part, in addition to what I said, it also um, turns on the idea that the the sort of elements of our transformation are latent in our society, imminent waiting to transcend the confines of that domain and transcend it in such a way that it becomes a new coherent pattern of life in which we invest our energies and in which we live our life in the light of. So, 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 so that's the first thing I would say. I think on this question of, of the tension, you know, um, uh, I think that these figures, James Baldwin, for instance, at the end, right? The discussion of James Baldwin at the end is an attempt, basically, to figure out how do we hold on to aspirational politics without falling into the standard mythos of American life, which is that when we make an affirmative gesture on the front of racial inequality, we are, by that fact, redeeming ourselves, mm -hmm. right? And uh, Baldwin says, well, first, that's misdescribing the weight of the history. 
the history or white supremacy, the enslavement of black people became the seedbed for the society in which we live. Mm -hmm. That then means that what has flowered from it is actually quite deformed. It doesn't mean that it still can't grow, mm -hmm. but it does mean that it bears the trace of its past. It's traumatized. And so are we, right? And amid that trauma, it seems to me that there's no way to sort of think about a kind of, to sort of imagine a perfect end state, um, a perfect end state in which we are redeemed. Yeah. And so part of the struggle may, it may mean inescapably making some uh, choices that are not politically, legally, economically, that are not perfect, mm -hmm. right? The The story of the civil rights movement, that bit of the civil rights movement that focused on desegregation uh, and legal initiatives to deal with the problem of racial inequality, and that also thought about uh, sort of racism as something that sort of lived in terms of our sort of our psychological states and thus emphasized education. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would want to say that that was a mistake in mm -hmm. some some ultimate sense. Yeah. I would want to say that that's the product, right, of the deformation of the American soul. Yeah. They gave life to a set of uh, a set of approaches that we got some good things out of, but that ultimately reinscribed yet again um certain harms and rendered us in other ways blind to the ongoing uh, the persistence of racial inequality. And so Baldwin, I think, at the end of the book, my suggestion is that Baldwin helps us, um, he readies us mm -hmm. um, for this fact, right? And that, of course, mirrors, although I'm not talking about Niebuhr, but that mirrors Niebuhr's attempt yeah. to both define us as questing after a kind of transformation even as he's ready in us for the ways in which we mistakenly settled on a moment as an ultimate expression of transformation, mm -hmm. only to be reminded of our frailty and our mistakes yet again. I mean, that's the children of light and children of darkness, isn't it? That's right. That's right. And I was and I was just going to say, um, kind of channeling what you did with uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, to uh, if I could characterize it as such, we got to be willing to take the L today yeah. to to win tomorrow sometimes um and how you kind of bifurcated the way uh, his, his understanding of people the people yeah. um and i i would also like to say going off of zach's question and your response i don't think niebuhr would object to the way that you're using faith at all in fact i think that he saw religious language as a resource mm. for better grasping the tensions of of everyday living and and politicking, uh, uh, political talk, uh, especially he, he he loved doing that. So it's not necessarily uh, always couched in relig religious implications, but there's always but there can be religious uh, applications. Mm -hmm. I, I a question that I just got to follow up with that a question that did come to me over and over again because again I'm, I I all my questions here have been on the the, your, the concept of faith in the book, but how do we cultivate the faith, that faith like well how do we how do we like 
in, in, you could, I, mean, I'm, I'm, I understand that it's a, you're using it more broadly, but how do we cultivate the, that faith that is necessary for political life? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a pastor, so I'm, I'm just biased, right? Like, I'm like, Hey, like I, I see a, there's a spiritual dimension to cultivating. I, th- I can see a connection between, um, cultivating, uh, faith within a spiritual community, but then also seeing that faith, that, that ability, that cultivation of faith then expanding out into your community. Right. No. So I would say, you know, I think, so let me, let me sort of back up a little bit. So in the book, um, I don't, uh, take up practices or institutions that can serve as the ground for the cultivation of the faith. Um, uh, that's sort of right. So that's not the angle I'm pursuing because I'm trying to bring a set of concerns into view and the stuff about practices and institutions won't be able to get off the ground if we don't have in view that faith is central to democratic life. But now as we sort of think about, so let's say part two, as it were, let's say of the book, if one were thinking about this, let's say we go back to the 1830s, where I initially start with the abolitionist David Walker. Mm-hmm. I focus on his textual intervention. Well, I think I probably then would want to spend some time on the actual institutional, the institutions that are developing around him. The Freedom's Journal, the newspaper that emerges in 1827, and then a series of other newspapers outside of that. I would want to focus on the Negro Convention Movement. What are these folks doing in this convention movement? How are they relating to each other? What are the bonds of affection and attachment that are emerging? in their ordinary exchange. So black philanthropic organizations that are emerging in in the 19th the 19th century, how are these serving as sites that capture the uh, uh that, that 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 sort of reveals the the sort of the sort of glimmer of human possibility and human openness, right? That fuels our faith, right? Right. And I would want to focus on um, places where where black people and their white counterparts have been in it together as a way to sort of fortify the soul and and sort of reveal what otherwise is 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 latent, but the sort of transcendence of human affection. Right. So that so those would be the places that I would would focus on. I think we could run it all the way up to the present moment. If you know, if we look at, at you know uh, uh, the movement for Black Lives um, and the ways in which these have served as not just simply sites of education, well, how do you and I get on and organize together? But they've also served as sites of living faith. Mm-hmm. Not faith is just simply a discursive claim or right uh, something I utter, but but the way in which as Julia Cooper get off right get 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 out of your chair, get off mm-hmm. your your, your sofa and live your faith, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's where I would focus. And then we can begin to ask another set of questions, which is, okay, well, well, what are the practices? Yeah. Right? And how do they serve to nurture faith? Mm. And, and speaking of Cooper, uh, I think this is a brilliant segue into what you do with rhetoric as well as a place where faith becomes concrete. Mm-hmm. Um and you talk a lot about rhetoric in here, and I love how you frame this uh, so much because despite what truths or challenges academia can discover in the ivory tower, it can't do a thing 
without the rhetoricians entering into culture and mm-hmm. selling it for lack of better terms. Um, and, you know, in theology, how what we would call this, this space, this rhetorical space uh, is incarnational. Mm-hmm. Um, it is that space where our ideals are relativized and galvanized where the rubber meets the road. And uh, and I can't help but think, Zach and I are both pastors, um, by the way, and I can't help but think of the pastoral role as occupying that very same place. Now, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I have one more uh, comment to make about this. And I, and I want to get your reaction to it. Um, I have something prepared, but uh, Michelle Alexander, okay, brilliant legal scholar, cultural critic. She wrote the new Jim Crow. You probably know her. Um, she left her job uh, teaching law at Ohio State to go to my alma mater, Union Theological Seminary, to help train pastors and mm. community organizers and leaders. And her reasoning was this, and I and 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 I quote: She says, "This is not simply a legal problem." She's talking about justice. This is not simply a legal problem, or a political problem, or a policy problem. At its core, America's journey from slavery to Jim Crow to to mass incarceration raises profound moral and spiritual questions about who we are individually and collectively, who we aim to become, and what we are willing to do now. I have found that these questions are generally not asked or answered in law schools or policy roundtables. So I am going to a place, she says that takes very seriously the moral, ethical, and spiritual dimensions of justice work, Union Theological Seminary, uh, end quote. So she's basically saying, there are things I can do within a seminary that I can't do at a law school. And this seems like that kind of incarnational space of the of, of rhetoric a little bit. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, I don't know uh, Michelle Alexander personally, but of course, uh, she's an extraordinary scholar. Um, In another life, you know, uh, if I had to do it all over again, I don't know that I would be doing political theory. I'd probably be in religious studies or um, (laughs) in a seminary. Um, uh, uh, I'm I'm quite certain I probably would be. Um, So I think that the, in our, in sort of contemporary academic spaces, right, for the people who are thinking about in political theoretical circles about democracy and legitimacy and these kinds of things, much of the emphasis is on institutions, procedural configuration. Mm-hmm. That's where the bulk of the of the work, right? And even those who are concerned, for example, who might not be political theorists, but social critics, um, whether they're coming out of Black studies, whether they're coming out of English, sociology, will concern, for example, about um, capitalism, um, and who want to propose alternatives and, and turning back to Marx, much of their thinking is around institutional configuration, albeit as it bears on economic relationships. And so much of our attention is on institutional reconfiguration, institutional reconfiguration. The reason why that's the case is because institutions um, are the things that you can sort of see and feel. Mm-hmm. I, I know that I'm, I'm at Brown University. Yeah. I know what I'm moving through. The carceral state, I know what I know what it's moving through. But what is often obscured that I think that, that this tradition wants to bring into view, particularly about racial inequality, is who do we take ourselves to be and the practices in which we participate in the institutions through which we move. 
and the bearing of those practices and institutions on the lives of those with whom we otherwise share the society? Who do we take ourselves to be? And that question, it seems to me, does not come into view in the way that it should. And there's no way for me, I would say anyone else, to read this tradition and not see that they are constantly preoccupied with who do we take ourselves to be, both Black people and their white counterparts, mm -hmm. right? When David Walker is is saying in his pamphlet of, of, of 1829, 30, I have to awaken my afflicted brethren. He's asking him, well, who do you take yourself to be in the face of this of these practices of domination? Hmm. Are you really the slave? Or have you just merely been enslaved? Hmm. Right? And what are you going to do in the face of it? And that question is a question fundamentally about the character of persons and the character of the society to which you to which you belong. I don't think. That's the only place where one has to, to, to be, right? But it is a critical place where one has to stand in order to grapple with um, the persistence of racial disregard in, in the United States, right? Our political moment at this very at this at this at this very moment, independent of race, at the heart of our political moment at this very moment is about who we are. Mm -hmm. It's about our character. That's right. It's not about the failings of any particular norms, because as Hosea Easton tells us, right, this figure that I deal with in, in chapter two and three, um, as he tells us, look, you have the perfect laws and the perfect norms. You have a deformed character, and they will find a way to deform those laws and those institutions. Mm. And so you got to deal with you got to deal with the character. And so now to bring it back around more precisely to this issue. How then do you move people, right? And African-Americans, uh, these figures, rhetoric fi figures centrally. And it figures centrally in two senses. One, because rhetoric is the means by which we move people from one side to the other, right? It's, it's persuasion. But more significantly, given the nature of the problem, when people have been so moved, you want them to say at the end, I've been persuaded. Whether I've been persuaded is not principally about the rhetorician, what the rhetorician has done, but what you've done for yourself. Because when you say I'm persuaded, you're also saying and deciding to live your life in the light of that persuasion, whether the law is present or not. Especially, oh, justice, yeah. I mean, that's what racial justice requires. Go ahead. Do you see this project as working within American um, personalism? within this tradition of centering so much of this on the character, the personhood, the agency of the person. Um, do you see this work as kind of within that tradition or an extension of it? So I think, so one of the things, um, so so David Walker, for example, he was a used clothing clothing dealer. dealer. Um, he was the Methodist, and there's a kind of sort of freewheeling uh, <laughs> Uh, as a Methodist at work there. So I don't really deal with, for example, the Episcopalians, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't deal with Alexander Crummel, for example. But um, one of the things that um, I try to say is that I, I want to be historically specific with these thinkers. And they are not, in the first instance, trying to figure out how they relate to this or that tradition. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Right, because right? because they're... They're, they're public philosophers on the move. 
meaning that right meaning that the urgency of the moment is pressing on them they see injustice at work and they're reaching for resources in the tradition but they're not in the first instance saying well how do i reach for this resource in such a way that i can ennoble this tradition called republicanism right 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 although they're deploying republicanism right right Right. And so I think that there's a kind of family resemblance between um, what these thinkers are up to, personalism, republicanism, um, the Scottish moral sense tradition. But I don't sort of see them as sort of properly housed within any of those. And and to be fair, personalism is a lot of times like retroactively applied. Uh, It was in its beginning anyway. So. Really, though, I think uh, so far as like the Walker essay is concerned, like the the that fundamental switch, I think that you really drove home for me is that he just assumes black agency and that he uh, he is um, appealing to their judgment, I think, is is basically the way that you put it. Um, That switch right there is such a fundamental uh, part of democracy, of uh, of uh, civil engagement, uh, and and all the above, and uh, it just seems like that's that's so much, even even with the tensions uh, between uh, the the narratives, romantic and tragic, what they get wrong, both of them, is you know you don't come out the other side of it with uh, agency, at least on the tragic end, right, um, right. with a whole lot of agency. Uh, and so that that seems like it's a very central part of what this book is. And and I apologize. I know that you know the the trend for every academic or any theologian is to label something, uh, and and that's most of the time unfair. But I was just trying to kind of orient our listeners about what like what is the, what tradition is this coming out of? Right. I don't think no, no need to no need to apologize. Right, because we all we we all are trying to find our entry points into every single text. And sometimes to get the entry point, we sort of, we go through our catalog, right? Our archive and we go, oh, this is my entry point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the entry point needs to happen in order for us to have a conversation about how these things ap- actually map on um, and, and whether or not it's appropriate to talk about these figures as emerging out of, in a very specific way, the tradition or a kind of family resemblance given a set of moves that are being that are being made, right? Um, so at work around these figures, we know uh, Christianity and its various forms are at work. And we know around these figures in the early, so part one of the book, we know that the Scottish moral sense tradition is part of um, the discursive infrastructure of the United States. We know that republicanism and sort of natural liberalism is also part of the sort of infrastructure. And, and, and they're sort of reaching for these resources, but as they reach for these resources, because they're reflective about what they're reaching for, they realize the adequacy or inadequacy and thus engage in the revision. The mm-hmm. revision then becomes our philosophical inheritance if we want to take it up. Right, yeah, that's true. Um, so this is my last question then, Zach, uh, if you want to do the closing question, is that okay? You don't have your, why don't you just finish it off then? I think he's he's got to go. Okay. Um, in the spirit of two white dudes trying to learn, um, what do you, what would you want, um, a white American to get from this book? 
Um, is it even uh, in the mind? Uh, is, is it even in your mind as you're writing this? No, but it wasn't in my mind as I was writing it because I was just trying to figure out what these figures were trying to get their white counterparts to, to understand. Uh, I suppose I would want the reader, uh, every reader, to sort of understand that uh, in the United States, that our philosophical inheritance is uh, richer and deeper than we know. Hmm. So this book is focused on African-American political thought. But you two, and let's use you as representative for a moment of a wider, right, a wider group of folks, you two should also see this as your inheritance. Mm -hmm. Because it is part of um, the vernacular of democratic life that we share. And it's a portion of that vernacular that if we take it up, may help us imagine our relationships differently. And imagine our relationship differently, not because we're trying to escape our past, but because we're trying to confront it honestly. Yeah. And perhaps in fear and trembling, but confront it honestly all the right, all, all the same. So that, you know, that's my sense, right? That's my hope is that you'll see this and you're like, wow, the case study is about black people, but the lessons, presumably the lessons could travel. Right. Um, that if at the end of this, at the end of the book, you come to realize that these figures are trying to generate a kind of um, civic agility in us. And part of that civic agility involves seeing ourselves as malleable. It involves seeing ourselves as sites of emotional and aesthetic transformation. It involves seeing democracy as this thing that's not settled, but open, that we're constantly calling into existence through the language of the people. Um, that democracy is this thing that comes about because we're engaged in a struggle of persuading each other. And that persuasion goes to the very heart of our soul. It seems to me that suddenly you could drop the story about race for a moment and you can you can put something else in because all of those values and all of those practices should still hold as being central to what keeps um, uh, uh, that keeps our, our, our democracy alive to the grievances that we'll constantly grapple with. Dr. Melvin Rogers, thank you so much for coming on with us. It was a great pleasure. Uh, thank you both. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our guest, Dr. Melvin Rogers, for coming on with us. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Like and subscribe. Write us a good review if you're enjoying it. And follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and updates. Maybe drop us a couple bucks in our tip jar while you're at while you're at it. Take care, everybody, and we'll see you on the next one.